Support for the Woj Pod comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website, choose a template you love, and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you could tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this very podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website, so create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Woj, W-O-J, to get 10% off. Hey, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Salt Lake City with Utah General Manager Dennis Lindsay. Dennis, how are you? Good. Thank you. It's a game day here, thunder in town, and now we're to the time of the year, Dennis, where these Western Conference games against teams you're jockeying with in the playoffs, they're starting to take on greater value, and you, you felt it around the town the last couple of days, people talking about a regular season game, and and I'm sure you're feeling it in the building that all of these now really, really matter. No question, especially when you're facing potentially another potential playoff team, and OKC in our division and last year in the playoffs. So I, I'm certain that Paul George is going to be pretty in, interested in our game tonight. So, uh, yeah, we'll have our hands full, but we look forward to the competition. The way the conference has played out, and certainly there's been, you look at the standings now and what people might have imagined. I think they thought they might see an LA team in the playoff chase, probably thought Lakers, not Clippers. And, you know, obviously, you know, Houston from a very difficult start has pulled themselves all the way back to what I think within four of Golden State in the loss column. Does it feel like the West, the word you guys all use a lot is the variance of results, right? That it's, it's felt more, I don't know if wide open is the word, but listen, nobody imagines Phoenix going in and winning at Golden State and you're seeing teams at the top losing games but that's a bad loss that's a bad loss and then you go well it's the way the whole yeah both conferences look, so it looked different this year so we've had several of those losses as well early and a couple late and what's been interesting this year if you talk to any analytics guy from any team the league and the result the prediction of the result prior to the game has been harder to predict this year than uh, ever before which in my opinion, is great for the NBA league office because, you know, the blowback they get on that issue, it's great for Adam. I think Adam and this year's rules committee bringing in, um, disallowing the grabs and the holds has contributed to that uh, variance being shrunk, in my opinion. And in, in addition to, look, three years ago when Golden State, four years ago when Golden State started their dominance, uh, it was clear. It was almost like Tiger, mm-hmm. uh, Tiger Woods, when his on the tour, that dominance, and it was just he was going to go in. You felt like he was going to win every tournament for a while. And that I think the whole league felt that way on Golden State. And I still think Golden State 
is the favorite. There's no question, especially with their experience. And they do. They have the ability to cut it up, uh, turn it up in the most important moments. But that, that variance that you described, that the delta between them and the next group of teams, um, at least based upon the regular season results and point differentials and where we're at offensively, where we're at defensively, it looks like it could be a tournament this year. I still think Golden State is the best team and we're all kind of chasing them and Milwaukee's emerged as well on the other side of the bracket and Toronto's good and Philly's good and I still think Boston's a contender and unfortunately Indiana had a significant injury but I think we're going we're in store for some really compelling TV and and uncertainty around outcomes is always best for for sports leagues you know Listen, every organization has to manage a lot of stuff in the locker room, among coaches, players, 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 owners, players. I mean, there's so many relationships that have to be managed to make the thing function, right? And there's always problems, and there's many more problems than we ever see in public. The best organizations take care of them in private. Um, sometimes they play out into the public. People have seen it with Golden State. It is played out. For a place that felt like utopia for a few years, it's not anymore, and it's the reality of sports. And, you know, it's funny, with San Antonio, and, and you were there, and I think we've talked about this, I think people always thought there were never any problems in San Antonio, that it was just this basketball utopia, essentially. And what you would always really hear is, no, no, there's issues in the locker room, but Tim took care of it, or Manu Ginobili took care of it. Right. And you never heard about it. And in this day and age, I mean, listen, Steve Kerr says something to an assistant coach. Cameras catch him. People lip read. You know, something like that is said probably five times every game <laughs> with every coaching staff in the league. But not everybody can lip read. And But I think more than ever, managing the outside stuff and then managing your players who have more access to it all and sit on their phones and can sometimes become paralyzed by reading it all. I, I know players in the league who come in at halftime and they go through their Twitter mentions. And, like, you know, you shot one for six in the first half and you're getting ripped. And that's now on your mind walking back out. It's it's just five, six years ago you weren't even dealing with all so, this. So there's several points. And here's one that I would start with that I think from a league ethics standpoint we all have to get better at, in my opinion. And you mentioned Golden State. One, I think – None of us should be commentating on other teams. I think we all have enough internal things going on. And really, you gotta, you gotta concentrate on your own house, your own family, your own team. And, and so the, it's interesting to me, the commentary that happens outside of it. And luckily I learned from Carol Dawson and Rudy Tomjanovich and, and, uh, Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford and, 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 and literally, as you know, Pop and, and R.C. modeled themselves after Jerry Sloan, after yeah. the, the Laydens, after Kevin O'Connor. And, and, and it's just what you said. Uh, having a team is like having a family, raising a family and it's nuanced. And look, there's going to be moments where one child thinks that you, love them more than the other child it's just human nature and then and then you 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 fight for time and attention and so people don't stop being human beings once they're in a family and and that's 
the the beauty in the Ladens and the O'Connors and the Sloans and the Popovitzes and the Buford is that they do. They don't they pay attention to little things so little things don't turn into big things. The one thing I loved about RC, you know, we we, we paid attention to the family room in Houston. We didn't have a lot of major issues, but the family room is an interesting place and really we should all significant others uh, brothers, sisters, moms, dad, cousins, close friends, we should almost hang up the Hippocratic oath in the family room. First, do no harm. And so I was watching R.C. on how he managed this, you know, with the people that serviced the families to make sure they were taken care of. And, like, if there's a problem, come up. You know, the problem's going to be talked about. And, and it's worse, frankly, Many of us are afraid of confrontation. Like, hey, look, if there's something going on and something is going to be said, oh, let's let's just air it out. Like, if you have an issue, whether it, whether it's management wife or a player wife or a player mom or uh, a coach's wife or significant other or a brother, whatever those things are, and and just pay attention to it because really, what you find out is is people are people. They want to be heard. They want to feel comfortable. And so all of this goes into the locker room. New media is a huge issue just because of the electronic herd and the 24 hour news cycle and what you do. And, you know, as a team, you want to prevent everybody talks about in team building. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. Jeff Van Gundy said this is the first time I ever heard it and it was brilliant and literally. I think about this on a daily basis, whether we're interviewing someone or dealing with our coaches or our players or our management or managing up to ownership. Let's talk about what gets you beat first. Let's talk about the dysfunctions of a team. Let's let, let we're not I'm trying trying to be sanctimonious here, Woj, but what we what it is is it's you realize is and this is a Bill Belichick thing on and off the field. More games are lost than one. So let's let's not lose the game because we have some subplot uh, in the locker room or in the media. Let's just handle the problem. Like if there's a player and an agent upset because their names are public, you know, a player and agent are going to come and talk, and we're going to tell them the truth, mm-hmm. and we're going to handle it man-to-man, and we're going to handle it privately. And so when you do – look, if you – if ESPN would have – put up on scroll, hey, we're thinking about letting go of Adrian Wojnarowski and we don't care if he goes to another site, you and your wife are going to be upset. It's funny talking about confrontation as well. You know, that's the thing that people misunderstand about Jeff. You know, he's a good person and, and a great coach and and coach deals well with confrontation. He mm-hmm. thinks it brings clarity. I happen to be of like mind. I didn't realize it to the degree until we got together in Houston. And we, he and I had a couple right. knockdown drag outs. And we had one in front of Keith Jones, our trainer at the time. And, <laughs> and, and Keith's eyes were bugging. I forget the topic. I think it was we were arguing on who cared more about the results of the Houston Rockets and his argument was it's always the coaches that care more. And I was, I was arguing, Hey coach, no disrespect, but Keith and I have been here a lot longer. And so we're talking in loud voices. I'll put it nicely. And Keith's watching what's going on. I don't even know if Jeff will remember this. And then I made a point. I was like, coach, now if you're talking about your record, you're absolutely right. You and your wife and your staff care more about today's record than 
than the Rockets do. But if you're talking about long-term, it's the rub between management and coaches. So I, I don't know if Coach will remember this point. He's like, you're right about that. And, the, and then the, uh, the argument stopped. It was almost a funny, funny thing. But so you, you do. You go through. And then, and then Jeff started arguing the other side. Oh, of that, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's what he does. <laughs> like, luckily, he found somebody that likes to argue just as much as him. So, and it's just as stubborn. But, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious here. You know, it's a true story. But yeah, so you get into all of these issues with media, us blaming you guys. And you guys are, you know, investigative reporting. And as you mentioned, teams use media to either leak or or call some information and so if we're doing that you guys are going to have information and then we get upset because See, that what, you report what, what we said what, what i think's happening more than ever in the league and whether teams think they need the media to do it i'm not sure they do is teams trying to sow unrest in other teams whether it's to destabilize a team to get them to whether it's trade a player, fire a coach, any number of things that are in the self-interest of another team, I find I think there's more. I think there used to be more. You speak better to this. You've lived it. I think there used to be more, and maybe it's because the owners in the league have changed, and there aren't the relationships among all the owners. There were a group of owners are in the league for a very long time, and that teams will really target places – to create turmoil, to create narratives around them more than I've ever seen. And I think maybe some of it's in the media, but I also think they can do it through agents. They can do it through the players themselves. And I get it. Well, yeah. and here's what I would say to it. Uh, and maybe I'm a little naive here and I certainly don't want to seem Pollyanna uh, regarding this issue. I think I recognize some of those things that happen that have happened with uh, teams you know, obviously there's this trade deadline and some conjecture and and that goes on. And again, maybe I'm naive. I, I can honestly say I, I never remember that happening in eleven years in Houston and five years in San Antonio and another seven here. It's just again, it's getting back to your own team and how you operate. And look, you know, t- let's just take tampering for example. You know, look, everybody knows that there's a certain extent of that that goes on to different degrees, right? And, and then you got to ask yourself personally what you're going to do there. And the league, you know, they're not an investigative body. There's only so much that they can control. And so what we all have to do, in my opinion, is take a step back and realize, yeah, we're competitors and we want to be the last team standing. There's no denying that, but we're also partners. And so when you leak, when you tamper, it's heroin. You may, you know, get a temporary fix and, you know, to hurt someone else so you better your position. But good business, like if you want to do this 20, 30, 40 years, the best at, at longevity, you know, are the guys that shoot straight, that don't leak. Because long term, the, the beauty in Carol Dawson, my first lesson, you know, and I, there wasn't anybody between he and I when I joined the organization in 96, so I quickly de facto became middle management and a year or two later became upper management, as he told me, he and Rudy Tomjanovich got in and they told me, look, we're, we're looking for three things here. Hard work, have some competency, and then move that to a high level of competency. But something that's way more important than either one of those issues is trust. we got to trust you. 
we got to be know that you're going to be a steel trap with our proprietary information. And so, and luckily, RC, you know, you know, had a values-based way to operate in spades. So, yeah, you can go to the – we're all sitting around the poker game, and you can trick it up. You can have a card in your pocket or this or that, but you're going to get found out now or later. So you leak. You know, we had a team leak uh, this trade deadline, and we're dealing with that in an internal way. We may eventually deal it with an external way. We had an issue with a team a couple of years ago where – where the, we trust the management, for example, and the owner leaked, and we called. We called the, the GM and assistant GM and said, hey, look, you got to understand, we can't trust you anymore. They used that. They talked to the owner, and we have actually the assistant GM who eventually took over called me and thanked me, said this is the best thing. We said, hey, if you can't deal with Utah, you, we can't deal with anybody. And I'm not trying to say we're better than anybody else, Woj, but – and now, since then, we've we've had a couple of transactions with the team. So there's a process of that happening, you being outed and find out, and then what are you going to do uh, moving forward? And and so those are the conversations that you do. Yeah, you're gonna you have to confront someone and call someone out, especially if they're trying to either unintentionally, intentionally. It's hard to know intent. You know, they may be trying to better their position, not hurt your position, or they may be trying to hurt your position. Either outcome, intentional or not, you, you just got to call a spade a spade. That's where you got to have a man-to-man conversation. When a player's name gets out, whether it's a story or wherever, I mean, if you want to scour the Internet long enough, you can find out every player's name, right? You can, in some shape or form, you got to decide, player, anybody's got to read it and decide whether it has if it's based on any kind of reality or it's somebody just putting something on the internet. But when does it cross over into the area where you say, okay, I have to, I've got to go talk to my player, whether it's to tell them it's true, it's not true, because you'd be walking through your locker room every day, all day, if, if you want to react to everything. Yeah, no question. Especially that heats up, you know, month out of trade deadline and you guys and the fans have contract information and, and, and it's a, an unfortunate thing. And look, I'm not going to be the old guy screaming, get off my lawn. Woj. If I, if I can't or don't want to deal with this, I'll, I'll do something else or I'll take a lower position. So it, it is a reality that when I started in 96 that we didn't deal with nearly as much with, you know, the electronic herd and 24 seven news cycle. And it's, it's a reality. And again, getting back to, the jazz and how we operate. Kevin O'Connor, Scott Layden, uh, Mr. Layden, Frank Layden, Jerry Sloan, Phil Johnson, those guys like, you know, things didn't get out here. And, and so we're trying to do the best to honor the culture that they had prior to us. And luckily, you know, when I came here, we had great alignment because of how we treated things carefully in San Antonio as well. And so, uh, it gets back to uh, agent calls. There's only so much you can tell an agent. You can't give up timing and details. But if he calls and asks, we're going to say, yeah, there was a conversation. Nine times out of ten, when Justin uh, Zanuck and David Morway and I handle that conversation, when an agent calls, they're inaccurate. It, you know, But there are some that are true, and if it's true, we're not going to BS anybody. And then that leads to conversation. And, look, players have 
their career. They have their significant others. Sometimes they have their kids. Like you know, you throw them upside down. So we've we treat this very carefully. And are we as good as what the Jazz were in the mid '90s in this aspect? No. Are we trying to be as good? Yes. We're dealing with a different environment. So the best way is to to shoot straight, and then. Most of the time, uh, the player still isn't traded, and then you have to have a follow-up conversation post-trade deadline on, you know, how, what went down. And, and, and then, in my opinion, get square. Now, maybe, you know, in other places you can leave things unsaid and it eventually dissipates. But, uh, again, I think you, you shoot straight as best you can. And, and, cause here, here's the thing. We, we have to have, agents trust we have to have other teams trust we have to have players trust we have to have trust from the league itself and the best way to do that is just be as honest as possible and i think over the long term it's just a better way to operate gotta catch the game on the go no worries metro by t-mobile has you covered switch to metro and get coast-to-coast coverage on a network that covers 99% of people in the United States. Now you'll catch all the action almost anywhere you go. Plus, you'll save a ton over what you're paying with Verizon or the other big guy. Switch to Metro and get on a big network for way less. Coverage may vary, so please see the store for details. Now is the time to score big with Metro. Switch and get on a big network for way less. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. You guys will study the impact of a trade deadline over five years, 10 years, 15 years. You can go back. You can look and see what deals made an impact short term, long term, you know, and you're, all those things are going into a decision about whether you do something, you don't do something, how much you're willing to give up, what you value, all those things. I think most teams do that. We make a big deal about the trade deadline. We treat it like it's, you know, someone's going to win or lose a championship there. Almost never happens when you look back, but what have you guys found in your, you're making decisions at this trade deadline, you've done it in other years, some years you've made deals, some you haven't, you're all doing the same thing. You're trying to balance a move that might have repercussions this year, but also how does it set us up down the road? Like, you know, so what did you guys find and and how'd that figure into your decision making this year? So Adam spoke to a little bit of the you know we're we're great with Twitter, right, and the drama of all it. And, and the problem is, and what, so the hits and the clicks and the interest, and a lot of it is the soap opera and the actors around the drama that that gets the attention. But you lose the game, and so you, the, there's a natural inclination: action, action, action. Right? What happens in poker? Usually, the poker players who are at the the last table are the guys that, that fold the, the most and just keep with their hand, right, until they have a winning hand. And ironically here, you know, I don't want to give up too much of our study and details, but that if you actually look at the results of the team's post-trade deadline, the two teams with the best record are the Utah Jazz and San Antonio Spurs. I don't know who's best. Now, that starts with good players and good coaches, so don't get me wrong. But – 
they're also happen to be the the most adverse to trade ironically at the trade deadline so you get into whys and hows and then we also don't want to stick our heads in the sand like if there's a big opportunity to get a core piece and you you trade a a reserve player and a couple first round picks absolutely you know you got to look at upgrades that's just the trade deadline is my least favorite thing about my job because I, I know I, I know it sits on the players and you know I come from a playing scouting coaching background and so the sanctity of the team really it, you know maybe I overweight that I, I don't know but it bothers me when you know I, you can feel a player looking at you like you know here here's the grim reaper you know is he coming to grab me right now and it's right. just it's terrible you know I and I get it look I'm a suit I'm upstairs you know it that's just that's the role that you play inside of management. Have you and, ever had a guy run a walk? So you come and walk away. I've had I've had someone you know, or multiple. This the typical one. So you'll have a a player that you know you'll get quick eye contact, and then they don't want eye contact, or they'll turn around. Nothing rude, right? But just if you have a little sense for your environment and feel for people, that you know that that non interaction wouldn't have happened in training camp it would have been a joke it would have been asking your family so and look you get it it's not my most fun role but my job is to operate the jazz and always look for upgrades that's you know the directive of it being given by ownership and, and steve starks and, and so you do you have to look at alternatives and again getting back when when you don't do anything and at someone's names in the paper whether accurate or inaccurate you don't uh, when it's inaccurate, you don't have to have the conversation every time, but a lot of times you do. And I, I think it's important that the players know that if you ask them a question, you'll be honest. I didn't see it during the trade deadline. I, I probably, I think I saw it later that night or the next day. Uh, Ricky Rubio did have a pretty funny tweet. I want to say it was maybe around, maybe an hour before the trade deadline, where he tweeted something like, if I put my phone on airplane mode or if I shut my phone off, can it count? But it, it's, and I think guys can, Laugh at me. I think the guys who've been in the league know, like, hey, like, there's about five guys in the league who can sleep around trade deadline. Everybody else, who knows, right? Like, and, and that's, that's just the reality of the business. And it gets back to something. To me, this always, I, I want to ask you about this, and this goes back to something you were saying earlier. Organizations will always talk about a family environment, a family culture. But to me, the idea of using that term family in professional sports, family is unconditional love, right? Pro sports are the most conditional kind of love there is, right? And to me, it's always confusing. Like, your family's never trading you, right? Right. Like, they might want to. Sometimes they will. But. Some, right. They might want to send you on a <laughs> If there's a will and a lot of money involved, yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. But, but I do think, and I've seen it in college programs or in pros, but it can be you sell it on that and you sell it on that and then the coach leaves, right? College, right? Yeah. I'm going to come in your living room. I'm going to sell you a family, family, yeah. and then he takes off for a job and the kid's sitting there going, what happened to the family? I, I thing? get the essence and, of the question. Right? And to me, I, so. what is wrong with the term? And I want to say it was Jeff Van Gundy and I, maybe way back. It's always Jeff. These are the kind of conversations you have with him. What is wrong with the term team? Like team in the concept, like that's enough. And I always felt like the term family. Moves it, it a step too far. Yes. And then you look hypocritical because, when right, something it, happens. It, it, right. Instead of just saying yeah. team's enough, right? Yeah. We have a team. and But 
I, it's a good yeah. point, yeah. Woach. It, it, it's an excellent point. I've never thought about that, and you know, maybe you'll you've presented something that a few of us will adopt. You, you know, we all have cliches, yeah. right? And the trenches, and that's a bad one uh, for a lot of different reasons. The war analogy, and like what we do is not not mm-hmm. that. We're not. This all isn't that important. You know, and like there's the it's all getting back to the soap opera analogy. There's a there's a family, and that breakups play better in the soap opera than harmony, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you're watching whatever your your soap opera is, and, and so hence the hits, and yeah, so you get I, I get your point. If you use family, and then all of a sudden you divorce yourself of the family, because divorces do happen in family, and they're usually ugly right there are very few times that it's harmonious so but the thing that i would say and it's not arguing but the point that i make when, when you are together so much there's laughs there's tears there's triumph there's embarrassing defeat it gets very familiar and, and, and it, what i'd say is instead of family it gets really personal right uh, scott Pioli talked about this a few years back about how personal team building is and and so i, I don't want to be melodramatic relative to this but i i do think that you get very fond of your guys and and by and large i can't speak for every gm or head coach by and large you you, you don't want to trade anybody but it gets back to the results. So your conditional versus unconditional point is exactly right. It becomes very conditional, right? And, and everybody, everybody wants to say, hey, I'm objective, I'm objective, and this and that, because it, it sounds good. But what, the truth of the matter is in the draft or during the trade deadline, it becomes very subjective, you know, to, to what you're going to do. And then, you know, it's tough. It's tough when you have to say goodbye. So I think – from a team building standpoint, you're exactly right. Just points well taken. You know, maybe we'll even adopt it. But what I would say is, is during the season, it does feel like that. In my opinion, you should treat the players and the coaches and their families mm-hmm. as such. Mm-hmm. But when you do and you do say it, I understand the point because there, when there is a goodbye, it, it does seem quite hypocritical and cold. We've talked about this away from the pod and anybody who is in Houston as a player, front office, PR staff, anybody who is in Houston during Rudy Tomjanovich's tenure there is certainly as a player, but, but, but as a coach, two championships and the impact he had, there's always a lot of hall of fame. You know, so people make cases as part of sports, like who's a hall of famer, who's not. Uh, Rudy had been a finalist for a number of years, never got through the final vote. This year, they'll announce the inductees. Rudy's not even a finalist anymore. He's probably become the one where you go, why is this guy not in? It's talked about more than I think any other individual. And, and his is interesting, right, because he, you have a combination of a playing career, five-time All-Star. Obviously, his All-Star career is preempted by the punch and what that did to him. But two championships as a coach and U.S. national team coach. And then some, what I always think is a defining thing for Hall of Famers is innovation. Did you impact the game? There's a lot of guys who won. Like this guy won there, he won there. But did he leave something? Did he, did he introduce something to the sport or to that changed it, right? You say, yeah, Rudy started that. And, and there's some things with Rudy 
along those lines. Um, it seems, though, your group and everybody who was with them, I have not seen, and I don't know that it's orchestrated, but, but a more forceful campaign, and I think a belief among all of you guys, who whether you're in Houston there or anymore, that he belongs in the hall, hasn't gotten in, and why is that, right? So let me start from 25,000 feet. Look, uh, Houston, Texas, the greater Houston area, which is where I'm from, there's a generation of us that are reaping the benefits and the foundation laid by Moses Malone, Calvin Murphy, Rudy Tomjanovich, Carol Dawson as a coach, moving into Phi Slamma Jamma, and Guy V. Lewis, right, that took forever for whatever reason to get him elected, and and then Clyde Drexler and Hakeem Olajuwon, and again, Phi Slamma Jamma. Clyde and Hakeem were top 50 players all time on the same college team, and four or five other first-round picks during that era. So there was a group of us that grew up in the Houston area. Data actually speaks to this. When a team wins and wins in a particular sport, and you're of age from like uh, 6 to 12, you, you actually see a spike in fandom. Not only was there a spike in fandom, with uh, the Rockets and the Houston Cougars, there were some of us that were converts, baseball, football, culture, right, to basketball. And literally today, if you ask any college coach where the best place in the country to recruit is, it's usually Texas. It has a lot to do with Dallas and Houston, and in particular, Houston. There's unbelievable high school coaches, college coaches. Look what Kelvin Sampson's doing re- uh, vigorating that program. So Texas basketball facilities, attention to it, you know, is not understood to the degree that it's understood because we don't understand the history of where it started. And so Rudy's literally one of these founding fathers, five-time All-Star. Are you kidding? He was an All-Star after the punch. Most people don't realize that. He's probably a seven- or eight-time All-Star. His playing career, go look at those numbers, you know, College Hall of Fame and ridiculous numbers that Michigan, number two pick in the draft. And and it's really not about that, that and his accomplishments as a player. It's really his uniqueness as a person. And then you move into the accomplishments as a coach. The bronze medal uh, in Greece when he played with replacement players, you'd make an argument. That's his greatest all-time coaching job and and even then there was a questionable result in the semis that threw him into the bronzer there's likely a gold the back-to-back championships the big trades you know all those are done look I don't know I would never criticize hall of fame selection and he's going to get in in my opinion and everybody's opinion it's just in our opinion it needs to be Real quick, this is a no-brainer. I don't think there's ever been a coach that's won two NBA championships that's not in. So the question, obviously, is is why we're waiting. But you, you, you said something interesting, and I can bring some color to innovation. So when Rudy stopped playing, Rudy's goal was to never be a GM or a head coach. You can go back to his old interviews. He didn't want the job. He's such so humble, and he knew the stress that came along with it. Rudy, when he stopped playing, was a scout. And he and Carol used to splice film and scout. And, and then guess what happened? VHS came in. Rudy was the first guy, he and Carol, to realize this is going to change everything. Instead of getting eight games, we're going to get every game. Recording games, dissecting games. Literally, 
you know, he was as much as a video coordinator as he was a scout. That spawned a generation uh, in Houston of Jim Boylan, of Mike Wells, of Dean Cooper, of Melvin Hunt, associate head, myself. I was a personnel video coordinator and scout. It was his vision to hire young coaches, put them in the video room, and say, learn. And not go and get your Ph.D. degree, but go immerse yourself and be like a Ph.D. in basketball. I, there's no question I'm not sitting where I'm sitting. If I wouldn't have come in to that type of position where it's like, we don't want to hear from you for a couple of years. Just go learn. Do what you're told. Uh, scout. Learn the league. Uh, Rudy and Jim and Mike Wells, who handled a lot of the video, literally I'm sitting beside them a lot of times, and they're going through this painstaking order on what they were going to present the team on an outtake. And it was literally the first thing that was ever done. And it was an amazing process. And just through osmosis, I was learning, and Mike Wells was learning, and Jim Boylan, who's the head coach of the Chicago Bulls, he, he doesn't advance without all of this. And Rudy and Carol really came up with a thought. The first two teams with a video room were the Houston Rockets and the Orlando Magic. Guess what? who met in the finals that first year? Proliferation of video rooms right after that. Why? Because everybody wanted, everybody wanted to do it. And, and actually, there was fundamentals behind it. So Mike Budenholzer in San Antonio, Eric Spolster in Miami, Mike Brown in Denver. There's like literally head coaches. There's teams that are running organizations that they weren't called interns, but they were called video coordinator scouts, coaches, video coordinators. Rudy was the beginning of this. And it's some of the Paul Harvey, the untold story. You know, talking about shooting bigs, like, uh, you know, there was Lambeer, to, just to be correct, where that his being able to invert offense allowed Detroit to be Detroit and Isaiah to be Isaiah and 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 have post up smalls. But the first shooting for was Robert Ory, and that happened after the uh, tr- trade deadline, Valentine's Day trade for Clyde Drexler. Robert Ory was a small forward. He moved over to the four. And I wasn't there. This pre- predated me uh, a couple of years, but you hear the stories over and over again. So, and I was a Houston fan, so it was like I was there. It's like Rudy immediately saw it, saw that it changed the geometry of the court, created the spacing. Guess what happened? Houston goes in as a sixth seed in the playoffs. That team that was traded for with Clyde never played together. They back-ended their way in, uh, won all these elimination games. Like There's some ridiculous record that Rudy has in elimination right, games trying. that no one approaches. And the thing is, is yeah, Hakeem gets the credit. There's no question. The players get the credit. But talking about... You know, in elimination games where you got to calm the team, you got to quiet the noise. Rudy would call it removing the clouds. Literally, I, I went, I lived it as a fan. I was at Pensacola Junior College as a coach at the time. And then Mike Wells, who we did in uh, graduate school together, was telling me a little bit about it. And then I go there and you, you rewatch those series about how well he did the strategy, the tactics, the spacing, the quieting, the the noise. You know, it was Choke City. People remember Clutch City. Well, what happened is is Phoenix's comeback was Choke City. And so what did Rudy have to do? He had to calm the troops, say, hey, look, if we're good enough to take this lead, we're good enough to win it. He was able to remove all the clouds, 
get to the essence. And the beauty in Rudy was he never wanted to be a coach. He's not authoritative in nature. So we never tried to fake it. I think that's a lesson that all of us can learn is like you, if you're lucky enough to uh, ascend to a position where you're in charge, you really have to be yourself. If not, everybody's going to notice that you're trying to be something you're not. And that's, you're basically a fraud. Rudy never tried to be something that he wasn't. So it, it, you know, I, I got in, on Drexler, Barkley, Elijah, and it was amazing. It was amazing to see a coach that could keep control of a team that his first inclination wasn't authoritative. Now, he'd bring the hammer when the hammer needed to be had, and it was even more effective because he wasn't bringing the hammer on a minute-by-minute basis. So to me, this is a no-brainer. It's going to happen. You know, there's just a lot of us out there, Tim Frank, head of – media relations at the uh, at the league, a lot of people that he was just really good to. And I can honestly say I'm not sitting here without him, without Carol Dawson, without getting back to that those first couple talks. Hey, we want you to be highly competent. We want you to work really hard. But those two things are way secondary to trust. And it provided all of us a little bit of a code on how to operate. Yeah, what I think's unfortunate with the Hall of Fame process – over the last, I don't know how many years, there's more of a need to have to campaign for people, to have to make it politically expedient to get somebody in. How certain candidates are chosen now have become really political in terms of where your friends are in the hierarchy of the league. That has absolutely changed. And you've seen more people honored and put in the hall. And, you know, the contributors wing is really broad, right? Like, that's a broad category, and I think it was meant to open it up for people to sort of get away from just coach, just, just player. coach, just player, right? And you know, there's a lot of people take Tim Gergerich. I mean, I'm in Chicago the other night, and I'm watching Tim Gergerich out on the Great court, name. right? Tim Gergerich out on the court with Andre Drummond, and you've seen Drummond have this, and the you know the whole staff in Detroit will tell you the impact Gergs has had on Drummond, and I, I don't know, Gergs is in his certainly in the '70s, and he's not moving as quickly as he did, and but to me, like, Tim Gergerich changed the idea of the player development coach. Well, it started with him, right? It started with him, and he spawned a whole – he had his own coaching career. It will be surprising, Woj, for me to tell you that I'm not sitting here today without Tim Gergovich. Yeah. And that we never worked together, but he was at ABCD camp. He had his own camp. There was a generation of us – uh, Mike Browns, Chris Grants, Jim Boylan's, R.C. Buford's, me, though, where we're like literally, not only are you learning, you know, you feel like he's Yoda. Neil O'Shea, like, Neil O'Shea yeah, yeah, you can, Neil's, yeah. you know, gives Gerd credit. Literally, we're all learning, but we're all meeting each other. So the, the connections that have to happen in this business for you to advance. And, and so Gerg, I, I love him. I think he loves me. He's not the biggest fan of, uh, management, as you can imagine. And, and, yeah. yeah I'm, I, so I'm a suit. So, so I'm a suit. So he cracks me and he cracks me. You should have been a head coach. Yeah. I have to take, you know, the critique, uh, before I get the love, but you know, coaches, management, Players, you're absolutely right. He started a genre of coaches that right. that have now we're in five, right. six generations. Right. Ken, and, like to me, Kenny Atkinson, Lloyd Pierce became head coaches in the league because of something Tim Gerger had started 
a long time ago. My last act in Houston, I'd actually left, but I was able to hire Kenny Atkinson. I told Daryl, say, hey, because Kenny and I worked the EuroCamp together. Kenny, we coached together one or two teams, but we were doing player development at the EuroCamp together. So these these connections and webs are really deep mm-hmm. and connected, and there's no question Gerg, you know, changed the NBA. And listen, I'm not – Anybody who's gotten into the hall deserves that they've accomplished at a high level. I'm not, but you, in the end, you are comparing and you are, and I think it's gone toward marketing and business side and things like, I don't want to say anybody could have gone in and done it with the product you have, with the players you had and the, like, I see more of people taking credit for a cause and effect of popularity and the growth of the league who I'm not sure how much they really had to do with it. And I think that's, the fine line because you can go grab when you're a coach when you're a player when you're a gm you have a very distinct record we can look at it when you're one of these sort of nebulous positions you can put it in your bio and people can start to believe it and that's right that's what's happened to me and i think i don't know if that's caused rudy or that caused gergs but i do know you better be politicking you better have a campaign i yeah. mean jerry Krause to me is a great example of that. I was talking to Jerry and I'd written, he was retired and we were getting in touch and, and you looked at Jerry Krause's record and listen, you may not have liked Jerry Krause. He wasn't always a great people person to people and he certainly brought, but like, that's not what the hall's there for. It's for accomplishment and impact. And I don't know who said it to me once, like, here's how you define the hall of fame. Can you write the history of a sport without that person? Ask yourself that question. Can you write the history of baseball, basketball, football without that person? And you go, there's guys like in college who won 500, 600 games. And I go, yeah, we could write the history of basketball without that guy. And to somebody else, you go, no, this guy's impact was – and I just wonder how they're judging it. Yeah, I get it. Obviously, I haven't studied it like you. And so when when Yao Ming goes in and you're part of drafting Yao Ming or when Pop goes in and – you know, I got a small piece uh, there. I think RC is going to get in. Uh, several players in San Antonio. Uh, uh, obviously, Olajuwon, uh, Cheryl Swoops, uh, Tina Thompson, Van Chancellor, Carol, and I were there. And and I, I would like to think that Rudy's not getting in because uh, someone else is costing him a slot. And I, I hope it's not that, and I don't study that. The, the one thing that I would say is, is those who know him best. What is the media award every year for the coach that's most accessible? It's the Rudy Tomjanovich media award. It's like, like this guy's authentic. So the things that behind the scenes, the, the, the way he dealt with you guys, it literally was a lesson for me to watch him. His, his ability to interview, to listen to the question, answer it, you know, without making the reporter feel small on a question. Also being able to put in his point uh, where it didn't seem like he was in control, but if you knew there was a message being sent, was amazing. Was it, it literally I, I, scouting, I mean, per-minute stats. We were doing plus-minus on the bench, Um we did shot charting. We did. We started a little bit, not going too deep on five man lineups. Like Rudy, the the beauty in Rudy was everything was why. So motion offense comes up. Well, why do I want to have these four guys touch it? Where I want to put 
the main guy in a situation. Rudy was unbelievable with place. And so I think our system was a pretty simplistic system with Hakeem and, and as a post-up system. And so I asked him, hey, coach, you know, you have this. And he's like, Dennis, what I found out is, is early in my career, these complex plays were about me. Mm-hmm. What I needed to do is get Hakeem in a position where it was very recognizable to him, where he knew the outlet, where I knew how the defense is going to play it. And then we'd have a counter. He was literally an offensive coordinator. And it was like the humility in that comment that, you know, I don't, I don't need to trick this up so everybody thinks that I'm innovative and creative and all these things. Playoffs are reductive. I need to be fundamental. This is what happens. Rudy had a great statement on, relative to this. He said, I want a player to go into a game saying, this is familiar. And so his control as a coach was, you know, I not what can we do, it's what can we create or recreate, I should say. And it's interesting, uh, RC and I went with Jimmy Johnson and studied the Cowboys, and Jimmy's a fascinating man, and he basically said the that, same you thing. You guys would go down to the Florida yeah, Keys. Yeah, Florida like, Keys. Like, and, that became like a pilgrimage for a lot of sports. Jimmy was brilliant. Right? He f- created the first draft chart. You know, he talked about culture of the team, Troy Aikman. I was this huge fan. I actually stumbled upon us at ARC. You know, can we get there? And RC started laughing. He said, my dad knows him very well. <laughs> so we go down there. And so Jimmy said the same thing that Rudy said on fundamentals and simplicity, the Cowboys had their lead ISO play. So it was a handoff and where Moose Johnson would come through the line. They'd give it to Emmett Smith, and then Emmett Smith would have options to read. And literally, and then if they brought too many men in, in the uh, block area, then, you know, that was a play-action fake. And so everybody knew it was coming, everybody, but you couldn't stop it. And so the same thing with what Rudy developed. And the beauty wasn't in the complexity. The beauty in was in the efficiency and the simplicity. And so those are the stories that maybe there's a Hall of Fame member that's out right. listening right now. Hey, guys, we all know getting tickets online can be far too complicated. So many sites make it confusing, plus it's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. Everything SeatGeek does is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Look, before SeatGeek, I hated trying to get tickets online. It took way too much time, and the sites always made it more difficult than it had to be. But that all changed when I discovered SeatGeek. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. And best of all, my listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WOJ today. That's promo code WOJ, W-O-J, for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So be smart. Make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Usually this time of year, the last few years, I would catch you either on the phone or text and ask where you were and you know you you build your scouting schedule around college tournaments and 
places where there's prospects. And your son Jake played at Baylor where you played, and it's been a family school, right? And Jake came out of high school. You got you had moved to Salt Lake. He finished school here, right? And as I recall, I think Jake, I think Tommy Amaker had recruited him at Harvard, right? And could have went to Harvard and might be the first guy to take Baylor over Harvard. Might be, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just glad there was a, a Lindsay that would be considered. I, I was, it would, for me, it would have been, yeah, you can go to Harvard. You're just going to be the janitor. So, <laughs> um, my so, parents are proud. I would say that they're yeah, looking absolutely. down at heaven and they're, absolutely. they're proud. I went to the Harvard of Southwest New York State. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so Jake played and, and people watched Baylor. They saw him in the NCAA tournament. They saw him in big Monday games playing at Kansas and playing all the big conference games and was a key player. For three years, and then red shirts last year. Medically disqualified Medi- right. red shirt, basically yeah, the same thing. Right. Yeah. With the thought that he'd come back and play this final season, and you guys had been dealing with a hip injury with him uh, that was there, and essentially a thing where your hips, I think your bone is protruding out a little bit, and for some people, they don't feel it. For some people, it creates pain, and, and Jake wrote a piece, and you had to point it out to me, because I followed Jake on Twitter, somehow I missed the piece, and gone back and read it and and then jake tells the story of he goes in and has the procedure and thinks okay i'm going to come back and finish up at baylor and play this pretty good team coming back this year and then what happens from there yeah so i just start with his choice of baylor there he was uh, not a late bloomer but he was a big point guard so uh, as he grew late you know he went from low major division one mid-major type of interest and offers to a few high majors utah being one of them truth be told mom and dad wanted him at utah and and baylor's our place but we knew we were going to miss him and we would never tell him where to go so he had he had you know academic options as well to go and play and he could have went and played at a lower level and been kind of more the focal point so we had to have a long conversation like you're going to go to a power five conference school and there's a decent chance, a good chance you're going to have to be a role player. And, and so we talked about that. And when at the same time, at the same stage, you know, I didn't have someone telling me that. So maybe if I did when I came out and signed with Baylor, uh, I would have viewed it differently, but I didn't have the same capacity. I was too selfish as a person, as a player to say, no, I'm going to go in as a role player and I'm good with that. So we had, so I was proud that when he decided to, he wanted to get, look at high major and specifically Baylor and get back to Texas that he understood the term. So he was, you know, never a big score. He led him in assists, assist percentage. He was always an excellent, uh, defender, uh, both, uh, positionally and, you know, with, with activity and leader of the team and very good with schemes and tactics. So he really, in every way, put the team first, which, you know, as a, as someone who played and coached and scouted, you know, it, you, people forget. Quinn and I talked to this about your points average. They, you know, they remember you and how you played and impact. So I, I can honestly say that, you know, he approached it the right way. And then he did. He had a hip condition that we first discovered here in high school. And we knew that eventually that that hip condition would do. And I, as part of it, you know, he played his, his last year as a junior with a fracture all the way through his hip. And I don't, we don't know when it occurred, but it probably occurred somewhere halfway in the season and couldn't practice. They were just maintaining and, you know, he's in a lot of pain. 
but he didn't want to give up the season, you know, critical because of his role to the team. And, and, and I was proud of him that. And it was tough. So we took a couple of weeks after that to knew that he was probably going to wind up with a surgical option and it did. And, and then a weird thing happened with his nerves, you know, it happens a lot of times, uh, post op. It's called Parsonage Turner where your nerves shut down. Uh, for whatever reason, post-surgery. And so the nerves that control 